0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Today, it's a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday. It's the day after Christmas, as anybody listening to the program could tell you. And uh, we're closed. So <laughs> we're closed. The Mount is closed. Father Trujillo is closed. So we've recorded this very special mailbag edition for you uh, on this day after Christmas. Uh, so we, we won't be taking your phone calls, as I said. But if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, by all means, please send us an email Open Line at EWTN.com. That's Open Line at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Charles Beery, producing the program, and uh, our host is see every single Monday, Father John Trujillo, how are you? I'm doing well. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> Let's get things rolling here. I've got an email from Michael. He says, my wife and I are Catholic and have a devotion to Our Lady, We pray the rosary regularly, and we recognize Mary as the mother of God with a special place in salvation history. However, we just finished a 33-day consecration to Mary, and we have some questions about what the consecration contains. It seems to say that the best way to pray to Jesus is through Mary. Any graces we receive by our actions should be given to Mary and Mary is the spouse of the Holy Spirit and is given by God the task of dispensing grace where it is most
2: needed. What say you? Okay, well, as chaplain of the Legion of Mary and as someone who does consecrate himself year after year to the Mecca of according St. Louis de Montfort, I can say yes, uh, you need to understand those words because especially in, in 21st century uh, times, we may not have the full appreciation as they were originally written, but there it's very kosher, it's very approved. There's nothing in there that someone should be worried about, but it's understand them in the proper context. Um, God did not have to use Mary; He chose to use Mary. Uh, Jesus chose, freely chose, because He's the Son of God. He has still free will. Like He chose twelve apostles; He could have chose eleven, He could have chose none. He chose 12 apostles. He gave us seven sacraments. He could have given us five. He could have given us 12 or none. So God chooses things of his own free will. And one of his choices was not only that he created Mary, but he gave her the Immaculate Conception, so she gave give Jesus an untainted human nature. He also chose to use her, and we call her uh, Mediatrix of Graces. Now she gets the graces from Jesus, her son, and then she dispenses them, it's not because God says to himself, well, that's the only way it can be done, but that's the way he wants it done, in the same way when a Catholic goes to confession. We say, well, you know, why do I have to do it that way? Because Jesus said so. He gave the a power to the uh, apostles at Easter, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. So in consecrating ourselves to Mary, we're not bumping Jesus out of the way, we're not chopping him down from number one to number two and replacing him with his mother. It's like when my mom used to come and visit me and when I was a pastor in the parish. Any honor, any attention people gave to my mother, it was honor to me. I was happy. And if they showed disrespect or if they ignored my mother, I took insult at that. And the same with Jesus. He's true God. He's true man. And his real, true human nature, he would be uh, offended if people showed disrespect to his mom. Now, her role is not independent she is there behold i am the handmaid of the lord be it done to me according to thy word she is a humble servant so she is not going to do anything that's contrary uh, to the will of god and you know sometimes people may have this bizarre phrase they say oh well jesus closes the door mary opens a window well you know there's not competition going on here mary's will is always conformed uh, to the will of, of her son to the will of of the Father, and to the will of the Holy Spirit. So she's not someone that distracts us. And we understand in that proper context, okay, that Mary's there by God's choice, and anything she does is by his permission. Therefore, I see no problem with that.
1: Bill writes in, When I go to confession, which for me is weekly, my priest will give me penance of saying the Hail Mary or the Our Father. I am doing my best to pray the Holy Rosary every day in the Divine Mercy at 3 p.m. I have grown to love prayer and talk with our Heavenly Father. My feeling is that penance should be painful, as in discipline. I am just confused as to why he assigns prayer as penance.
2: Okay, well we have to realize that the penance we do in the confessional is not the penalty for our sins. Jesus took that on himself on Good Friday. So our Acts of penance are symbolic. Uh, we, we Certainly they're real, but the prayers that you and I offer, they're united with all the the, the work that Jesus did, the infinite uh, merit as, as the Savior of the world, with the superabundant uh, merit of Mary and the saints. So we're uniting our prayers with all of that. But it's not like you broke a window and the window costs $5,000 but you only pay ten. That's not penance, okay? Uh, But if you were a little kid and you had no money, uh, and your dad had to pay for the window, he might say to you, Well, you know, I gave you a buck for your allowance. Uh, Give me 50 cents, okay? Uh, Your symbolic gesture, which, you know, you do, your father now makes it something important. So our prayers only have efficacy because we're doing it for this particular reason. So penance, sacramental penance is not meant to be something that's uh, too strict because a penitent could say to the priest, that's too difficult, Father, I don't think I could do that. Then he has to give him a different one. But you could freely, of your own choice, outside of penance, do acts of penance or mortification, acts of self-denial that you could freely do uh, to engender Uh, sorrow for your past sins, that's penance, or strengthen you for future temptations, that's mortification. But you don't want to see it as quid pro quo that uh, I did this particular thing and this is the particular punishment. That's why there is no formula. What should a priest give to each particular sin? There's no card I have in the confessional or my colleagues do and say, oh, Mm -hmm. adultery, that's this, okay? Stealing, that's this. No, Uh, whatever prayers you say, even if it's one Hail Mary, one Our Father, It's not what you're saying, it's why you're saying it.
1: Uh, Hilda writes in, A year ago this July, my beautiful niece passed away from an aggressive cancer. Her mother, who is my sister, has now become more distant from God and has become even more difficult to talk to. I've randomly tried to help her open her heart to God, but she reacts with a lot of anger. On top of that, my other siblings get upset with me saying, Just leave her the blank alone. I've decided to distance myself from all of them since they don't help, and on top of that, they respond with profanity. Therefore, I don't know how to help my sister from the darkness she is in. Could you please advise?
2: Okay. First of all, get yourself the book Arise from Darkness by the late Father Benedict Rochelle. Uh, Read it yourself, and then leave it at your sister's house, but don't give it to her outrightly. Just leave it somewhere where she'll find it, and then maybe she'll read it because Father Benedict has this wonderful insight in that book. I used it uh, when my, my mother had to bury three of her five children. Um, we had a brother who died of muscular dystrophy. My sister died as an infant. And then my other brother was killed by a drunk driver. And then my dad died of leukemia. So my, my, my mother was no stranger to suffering. And in that book, he explains what to do when bad things happen to good people. Um, the idea basically is that uh, faith doesn't give us all the answers, but it gives us the ability to live with unanswered questions. Give, use that book for yourself, leave it with your sister, and most importantly, pray for her. Words alone are not going to suffice, and she needs time, and everybody's on their own clock how to adjust to this. You never get over, nor should you, get over these horrible, tragic deaths of our loved ones, but you learn to move on. Okay, You make an effort to continue, you persevere. And it's only by God's grace. But right now, your sister's not in a good place, so you're not there. Because remember, Jesus said, prophet's not without honor, except where? In his own house. So you may not be the catalyst that brings her back to God, but certainly your prayers will be efficacious for her. And when that day comes that she opens the door, so to speak, and says, you know, can we talk? Then, by all means, do what you can. But in the meantime, you're not really there to preach to her. You're there, and say to her often, I love you, okay? Tell her that more than once. Um, visit the, 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 your um, niece's grave and ask for her powerful intercession, too, because if she's in heaven or purgatory, she can still pray, and she certainly needs to pray for her mom.
1: Very quick answer in the last couple of minutes we have here. Uh, Gary wants to know, is the last day we celebrate the Christmas season on and including the Epiphany, or is it the day before Epiphany?
2: Well, the, the Christmas season lasts to the baptism of Jesus. That's right.
1: <laughs> Which
2: this year will be I think January
1: 8th if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Just getting started on an Open Line Monday, a very special mailbag edition on this day after Christmas. If you want to be part of a future mailbag show, send us an email. Open Line at ewtn.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Trigilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: It is indeed a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio on this day after Christmas. We've had a couple people from last week's program that were gracious enough to hold on the line when we were finished, and we're going to get to their questions right now. First up is Jim, a first-time caller in the great state of New Jersey, listening at EWTN.com. Jim, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you. What's your question today?
3: Uh, my question is, um, oh, it's a quick quick, quick question. Um, I'm having intrusive, blasphemous thoughts against the Lord. And I recently came back to church, me and my wife, about eight, seven, eight months ago. Uh, she passed on about five months ago. And um, I just stayed. And uh, I've been trying to work my faith, um, praying daily the rosary, um, going to confession, Saturday in, in church, in you know, in masses, and uh, this is really getting to me that these intrusive thoughts that I do not, I've never experienced them before. They're they're just not, they're just not right, and uh, it's really, I real, confessed them, I don't know how many times, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm seeking some kind of because I've been reading the scriptures. Uh, praying all the time, uh, talking to the Father at my local church and uh, asking the Lord for forgiveness every time. And when many intrusive thoughts come, immediately I, I turn to our only mother. Mm-hmm. Um, our pre- recent, uh, previous to coming back, I was uh, I made my confirmation, my baptism, my communion, but that was it. I never... Was in, formally into the church at the time.
1: So, help Jim out with these. I'm sure this is not the <clears throat> first time that you've. Yes. Uh, this first road. of all,
2: I want to uh, express my condolences at loss of your your wife, and certainly um, keep you in my prayers.
1: But thanks uh, be to God that happened after she came back to
2: the church. Yes. Huh? Yes. And we are very happy that that uh, both of you have uh, returned. Um, you and I. Have no control over the things that pop into our minds, um, whether they're impure, whether they're angry, volatile, or whatever. Um, it's what we do once we recognize those ideas are there. But whether it's the devil, because he certainly is threatened when someone comes back to church, or it could be just a chemical thing going on in our brains. Uh, you know, things go. You know, every image we've had since we attained the age of reason. It's still burned in there. It's like a hard drive, and from time to time they'll 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 reappear. But you do not have to confess those things that you're not responsible for. What you and I are responsible for is what do I do once I recognize? It? I say, Oh my goodness, this is an impure thought, or Oh my goodness, this is uh, you know this is an angry, violent thought. Now the the uh, morality it kicks in because for it to be a moral act, whether so so that it could be sinful or it could be virtuous, it depends on the fact that you have to have free will. And you and I have no free will when things are just popping into our minds. Now, if I'm watching something bad on TV or the Internet, yeah, I'm entertaining that, and that's a sin. But if I'm minding my own business, and as from what you described, that's what's happening with you, these blasphemous or bad thoughts are popping into your mind, you're not inviting them in, so it's not sinful... Uh, that you have them if you're not the cause or the catalyst. However, what do you do once you recognize them? So certainly prayer is the first thing we should try, but also some other things like some mortifications, very, very small. Um, This is not meant to be punishment, but little acts of self-denial during the rest of the day. Uh, Little, like, you know, if you normally take uh, some sugar in your coffee, uh, one cup, just put take it black, okay, uh, but only once. The rest of the time, drink it normally, because you don't want to create a new habit, and then it's no longer self denial, um, or maybe getting up five minutes earlier than you normally do. But also, here's a third alternative, and I use this with a lot of my spiritual directees and and that people come to confession. Sometimes having up your sleeve, as we say, some amusing anecdote from your past that always brings a smile on your face, or some favorite movie or TV show that every time you think about it, you you laugh. Like for me, there's a a famous scene in the Three Stooges movies where they're all throwing pies at everybody. Um, Every time I think of that, it gives me enough time to distract me from a bad thought, whether it's impure or angry. So using that technique, but please don't uh, feel that you have to run the confession every time these thoughts on their own appear in your mind. It's only when you invite them or when you then, once you recognize them, uh, encourage them to stay. That's where the sin w- would exist. But otherwise, you know, uh, it's a sign that, you know, the, the devil is probably, you know, not happy that he lost you, and uh, it, it will lessen in time the more graces you receive.
1: God bless you, Jim. Thanks so much for the phone call. Next up is Rosemary. She's another first-time caller in Waukegan, Illinois, listening on WSFI Radio. Rosemary, thank you for holding. You're on with Father John.
3: Thank you very much, Father. I'm calling about the books that your young seminarians read there. I have the four-volume from the Franciscans, but I was just wondering what kind of liturgical books do your young
2: seminarians read? Okay, well, we we give them the whole (laughs) the whole cornucopia of of what's available, uh, whether it's uh, our library is very extensive. We also have electronically now through this thing called Verbum they have access, but we certainly have um, the general structure of the Roman Missal. Um, We have um, all the different uh, things going back to the Didache. Um, We have... um, liturgical books, the rituals, Um, we have um, uh, Pope Benedict's uh, extensive, you know, renewal of the liturgy, Uh, you know, there's a lot that whatever is the the church has put out there, we make available to them and uh, we teach them across the board um, liturgically, but also we want to see that we want them to see that sacred liturgy, the sacraments and worship does not exist by itself. Lex orandi, Lex Credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief. And so there's an interconnection between doctrine and liturgy, and we want them to, to see that.
1: God bless you, Rosemary. Thanks so much. We appreciate the phone call. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not going to be taking your phone calls today. But if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, by all means, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Richard would like to know: Was Jesus dead for three days and three nights?
2: <laughs> well, I know he died on Good Friday, and he rose on, on Easter. Now, the exact moment we do not have the precise, you know, hour and and minute and second that, that it took place. Um, but we do know that from what he said, you know, in three days he would rise, so that people would definitely know that this was a miracle. This wasn't. Like, you know, people who die, and then a minute or two later, you know, they're resuscitated. He was dead for three whole days. Now, are are each of those days 24-hour periods? Certainly the, the first two would be, but, uh, you know, some people were asking, well, if he died at three, you know, did that mean he rose at three in the afternoon? Um, in the Jewish uh, calculation of time, they were not as minute and hour precise as we are now today, so... I would just say the concept of the day, that he died uh, on Friday and then he rose on Sunday.
1: Uh, Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Mandy writes in, in Genesis, we know that human nature changed with the fall of man. Did Lucifer change as well? When God made Lucifer as a serpent, was he changing him?
2: Okay, that's a good question. With uh, Adam and Eve, obviously there was a, a, wound, a wounding in their nature. So we have a darkening of the intellect and the weakening of the will and a disordering of the lower passions. They also lost the preternatural gifts, so they no longer had immortality. They uh, were no longer in the gift of impassibility where they wouldn't feel pain. Uh, they had a loss of integrity. Now with Lucifer and the third of the angels who went bad and they became demons they still have angelic nature. Um, to what extent their nature, uh, you know, was it wounded? Well, what's wounded can be healed, and an, an angel cannot be healed. You know, their act of the will is once and forever, and so it, it's wrong to say that they had a wound in nature. Alright? They corrupted their nature, and it was beyond repair. Whereas with Adam and Eve, it's a wound, and then sanctifying grace uh, heals that. Um... Be sure to check out
1: EWTN's Vatican Bureau. You can watch all the important events from Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. Watch live on EWTN's YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line. Not taking your phone calls today. Uh, Jeff wants to know, where in the Bible does it talk about predestination? Do we believe in that?
2: Uh, well, we believe in a form of predestination. that's different from the one that John Calvin and John Knox had, had adopted. They believe in the absolute predestination that God decided, uh, regardless of what somebody said or did, whether they're going to heaven or hell. Uh, we believe that God does predestine some souls to heaven and that that's infallibly going to take place. And yet the mystery is a person's free will is not compromised. But God does not predestine anyone to hell. And, you know, whether or not those in heaven were all predestined to heaven, there's a big debate that went on between the Dominicans and the Jesuits, uh, you know, um, Dominicus Bagnet and and uh, Luisa Molina, and finally the Holy See said, "Go to neutral corners." <laughs> they didn't take one side <laughs> over the other, you know. Um, so it play a football game, settle <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, very. I mean, very typical Italian response, you know. Yes and no, maybe, perhaps. <laughs> but uh, we, we so the predestination that we believe in as Catholics is that God can and has and will. At times, predestined someone to heaven, but that doesn't mean that those who are in heaven now, all of them got there infallibly, regardless of what they said or did. No, your free will is always intact, and God can allow things to take place, which we call his permissive will, which is different from his ordained will. So the fact that some people would end up in hell was not that was ordained, that was permitted like with the uh, fallen angels or if there's human beings in in hell. And with heaven, there could be people who were predestined to go to heaven and then people who just got to heaven because they lived holy, virtuous lives and they died in the state of grace.
1: Very good. A very special mailbag edition once again of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're not taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, you can simply send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Trigilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line. Monday, we're emptying out the mailbag. Rajesh writes in, I am a Hindu. Why would Jesus die for your sins? Doesn't that just make people feel like they can't,
2: that they can keep sinning? Okay, well, that's, that's, that's a logical question. And when we say Jesus died for our sins is he took on the guilt of all humanity, past, present, and future, upon himself and made the perfect sacrifice he offered himself uh, on our behalf. But that doesn't remove any of our responsibility uh, for our current and future actions. Um, therefore, if I do something bad today, it's on my conscience, it's I am culpable, it's my fault, yet what Jesus did is allow me the potentiality of avoiding bad things in the future and, God forbid, when I do do something wrong, I can repent, I can be sorry, I can be remorseful, and then I can turn myself around. So that possibility only exists because Jesus has redeemed us, as we said. Uh, he died on Good Friday. So without a Savior, without a Messiah, there was nothing the human race could do. We could never get to heaven. We could never truly repent enough that God would be able to forgive us our sins. And yet with Jesus, the God-man, who's both human and divine, uh, human nature, divine nature, but one divine person, the second person of the Trinity, in becoming one of us, he offers of himself freely, Uh, to the Father as the Son, and he connects the two, heaven and earth. He is the bridge uh, between the two uh, realms, and so he saves humanity, but he does not remove from us our responsibility. So it's not like, okay, uh, the governor pardoned you, you're let loose. Well, once you're loose, you still can't go around committing crimes, they'll stick you back in jail again. Uh, You were just uh, pardoned for that, particular crime that you did. Jesus, in forgiving us, forgives the particular sins that we are sorry for, but he also says, be careful because you know not the day nor the hour, and you can't presume God's mercy and presume his forgiveness. That would be a sin, and yet I can always count on it so that I know that no matter uh, how big a mistake I make, it's not irrevocable, that I am salvageable. That's the whole idea of being Wounded in nature, not corrupt.
1: Uh, Donna would like to know, if souls have been good in serving God throughout their lives, will they still have to go to purgatory?
2: Well, purgatory is uh, for those who still have some temporal punishment due to sin. And we do not know. uh, You will know at the moment of death when you have particular judgment, and God will reveal to you if that exists. And Again, purgatory is not hell with parole. <laughs> a lot of people have this image of that. A purgatory is a state of cleansing from the Latin "purgatus," and the cleansing is the washing away of all that attachment to sin. Um, the temporal punishment uh, is out of justice. You know what we owe because we've we've done wrong, and it's not just a penal thing where, well, you, you ran the red light, you got you got to pay the fine. Uh, it's this idea that I did something. Harmful to myself, and I need to be healed. And what happens is when you cut yourself, they put on stitches, and then they have to have removed the stitches, and then it has to heal. Well, likewise, if I commit a sin and I go to confession, I have my sins forgiven, there's still the residual, the leftover, and there might be some fondness for past sins. So it is ontologically possible that someone could die, not just in the state of grace, but have no attachment to sin. Or maybe because they got the apostolic blessing, they had no attachment, they could go straight to heaven. But I would say that a lot of us, and myself, I'm hoping that I get to that level at least, that we're going to have a chance to go to purgatory because we want to be cleansed. So it's not like, oh my goodness, I got to go here and wait. No, I realize that I need some sprucing up. You know, it's like when our mother said some special guest is coming over, so you boys have to wash your face, comb your hair. And uh, clean up the living room. Uh, We do it because it's the right thing to do.
1: Got a question from Noel, and we'll see we'll we'll see how, how on your toes you are here. But he wants to know what is meant in Galatians chapter four verse nine in the New Revised Standard by the quote unquote elemental spirits.
2: Elemental spirits.
1: Okay. Um, you're gonna make me look this up, aren't you? You're gonna to have to give me more context <laughs> than that because
2: I do not have scripture memorized.
1: Now, I would have thought the entire canon would have been at your yeah yeah at your immediate disposal. Uh-huh. But clearly, I, I that was, was canon
2: law. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, what? What was your canon law background? We are forever, uh, uh, Father. Wade Menezes is always telling us that they had a very uh, a very limited canon law formation when he was in uh,
2: Oh, I had the best because Bishop Dave O'Connell of Trenton, New Jersey was my canon law professor, so couldn't beat that.
1: Very good. In the meantime, I'll look this up, and while okay. I'm doing that, um, Adam wants to know how do we harmonize the apparent contradictions
2: in the resurrection narratives? Okay, well, anything that's apparent contradiction, St. Augustine makes it very clear to us uh, that the, the problem is in our interpretation, not with the text itself. Because remember, the original text is uh, Hebrew or Greek, and then we have a translation of that into Latin, and then from the Latin into our own vernacular tongue. So, uh, first of all, when we're reading something in the English text, we have to ask ourselves, what did the original say? What did it say in, uh, in Greek? What did it say in Hebrew? What did St. Jerome translate it into Latin? And then we have to also look at context, because something that Father Bob Levis was on the show for, with me for uh, 15 years doing Web of Faith, he said constantly, and I have it etched in my brain and I give it to the seminarians, you never take a text out of context, otherwise you get a pretext. So we have to always look at the text right before the passages, right after, and so the alleged contradictions that we see in the resurrection basically can be explained that you have different people reporting things. Um, it's like if you had four reporters covering something, uh, you know, uh, the same event, they're going to write for, uh, record things uh, based on the audience that they're writing for. So like the, you know, the New York Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, your local newspaper, could cover the same event, but express it differently. Not that anyone would be more one one's wrong and one's right. Uh, the 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 way they express it, the 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 facts themselves, um, you know, are remembered by people as they remember them. And all of t- all of Scripture is uh, if inspired, infallible, and inerrant. So because of that. I cannot conclude that there's something wrong with the text. I have to assume, as St. Augustine said, the problem is with my interpretation.
1: Now, regarding Noel's question from uh, Galatians chapter 4, um, I'll actually read you verse 8 as well. Okay. Uh, this is Paul writing to the Galatians Formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves you wa- want to be once more?
2: Okay, well that, that gives a better better context. Uh, these elemental spirits, obviously can be a number of things. could be uh, the, the devil and the fallen angels, could be the false gods that we had at the time of the, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks. Okay, they can also refer to other things, um, passions that are, are and uh, temptations that we have. So there's a number of things that could refer to. Uh, the idea is that we have to surrender ourselves completely to God, who is the supreme being, but realizing that he's not the only being, that there are other forces out there, uh, including ourselves, but then you have these other supernatural realities. You know, we have... Guardian angels, we have angels in heaven, we have the, the devil and the, and the demons in, in hell. Um, there's all these uh, beings and, and existences that are under God's purview. He created all life, all existence, He sustains them. But what He's cautioning us is that when you become a child of God, especially through baptism, you place yourself completely, or you should place yourself completely, under His jurisdiction. And sometimes we have Christians who dabble with bad things, whether it's Ouija boards, tarot cards, uh, labyrinths, you name it, putting hot rocks on your head or whatever other bizarre things people are doing. And you could slip into falling under the power of these elemental spirits, which, again, it's not that you have, like, wind, air, and fire, like the, like the Greeks believed that they were uh, intelligent uh, beings. But there are things out there, Horatio, that are more perplexing than you can imagine.
1: And we'll build a little bit now on your resurrection narrative answer. As Alex writes in, Are the stories of Noah's Ark, Jonah, and Job real events? Or are we to take them only as stories? And are there other books or stories of the Bible that we're meant to take only as stories?
2: Okay, that's a very good question. And, you know, Scripture scholars are very careful when they use the word Um, uh, myth. Because uh, in a common parlance, if you talk to somebody and use the word myth, they think, oh, that's a a made-up story. It's pretend, like the three little pigs or uh, Goldilocks or whatever. Uh, But no, biblically speaking, um, the use of mythology is not using fake gods or fake stories. It's telling a story, and it's as a story, which may have taken place, actually, so we definitely believe there was a Noah, uh, we believe that there was a Jonah, we believe certainly it's, it's dogma that there was Adam and Eve, but in telling of the story of, say, Noah and the ark, or the telling of the story of Jonah and the whale, we cannot get so absorbed into the detail because it's not written as historical narrative, as what we do have at the Last Supper where Jesus took bread, he took wine, he said this, he said that, that's narrative. In terms of myth, you're telling a story which is true. Uh, it has a particular meaning, but the, the uh, incidental details are not as crucial. It's like when my grandmother came from Sicily and she told us about her trip from the old country over here. You know, Did she remember it? Was it a Wednesday or Thursday? That doesn't matter. The point was she came from this place and went over here. Obviously, there was an the amount of time that took place. Um so in telling the story you make it interesting um you're not telling lies or or making up stuff yet you're adding you know things to it that make it more interesting so I certainly we all I mean the church believes that there was a Noah there was a Jonah but when people get hung up about how could you possibly get all those animals in that ark or was the whole world under a flood and uh how can you be in the belly of a whale for you know was it a whale was it a fish You're getting hung up on the details as opposed to what is the main story. That this man, Noah, was faithful. That this man, Jonah, all right, he learned how to become faithful.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're emptying out the mailbag, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Rick wants to know. How does the tribe of Levi relate to the priesthood? Were all the men of the tribe of Levi priests?
2: Okay, the the priests in the temple, uh, that was an inherited um, uh, status that you got. And so you were the tribe of Levi. Remember, it was Aaron, uh, the the brother of of Moses, who was put in charge of of the priests. And the Levites, that was the, the, the tribe that was in charge of taking care of the temple. Now, um, we certainly see this expressed uh, with St. John the Baptist's father, um, uh, the the husband of St. Elizabeth, and he was a priest of the temple by birthright. St. Paul makes it clear that Jesus is a priest, but not because he is of the tribe of Levi. He is not. He is a priest like Melchizedek of old, that he, unlike Zechariah, he receives this directly from God. God the Father. He's God the Son. So the Levites were very, had a particular job to do in the temple. But remember, temple worship wasn't the only way that the Jews practiced their faith. You also had synagogue worship. And in synagogue, you had rabbis who were not Levites, but rabbis were teachers who explained, sort of gave homilies uh, on the sacred writings, The priests, their main job was offering sacrifice. So they were there in the Temple of Jerusalem to slay the animals, particularly the lambs, uh, at Passover. But throughout the year, they were constantly offering sacrifice.
1: Uh, Linda writes in, she says, It is not true that we must go through Mary and the saints in order to pray to God. So why is this such a prevalent belief? Doesn't Scripture say there is
2: one mediator? There is one mediator. One mediator, Jesus Christ. We do not deny that. However, that same mediator encourages us to use these other intercessors, and the intercessors go to the mediator. Now, if Jesus did not want that to take place, he would have said to the centurion who asked that his servant be healed, you have that kid talk to me directly. Uh, I don't need you to tell me what, what he needs. He didn't do that. Whenever someone came to Jesus on behalf of someone else, and we see this with Jairus, okay, and his daughter, there are so many times where people went to Jesus not just for their own sake, but for someone else. That's called intercession. And the intercessor went to the mediator. Now, it's true, you can go directly to the mediator, but it'd be like if someone says to me, "Um, Father, I'm having knee surgery tomorrow, could you pray for me? And I would say, no, you want Jesus to help you? You go to him yourself. You don't need me. Well, it's true you don't need me. You can go to him yourself, but it would be unchristian and rude of me to say that. It's an honor and privilege for me to pray for you. St. Paul prayed for the Corinthians. He asked the Corinthians to pray for him. So intercession is not something that we tolerate. It's something we encourage. And here's the most fascinating thing is, in the Protestant tradition, they do a better job of it in some ways. They have a, a prayer chain where if somebody in the parish gets sick, They call up everybody and say, you got to pray for Agnes. She's having surgery next week. And no one says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be an intercessor. You have them go directly to Jesus. They say, yes, of course, I'm going to pray to Jesus for them. So that's why we do it, because it's not only allowed, but it's encouraged. We intercessors who are imperfect go to the perfect mediator, who is Jesus.
1: Scott would like to know, can you explain the difference between judging and
2: discernment? Okay, uh, discernment is when you're trying to ascertain what is the proper course of action. You discern here at the at the seminary. We have this whole process of discernment where the guys themselves and we, as the seminary formators, help them discern: should they be a priest, uh, should they be a diocesan priest, should they be a religious priest, uh, or should they, you know, be a layman for the rest of their life? Should they be a husband and a father? Uh, judgment is when you're looking at a particular, uh, especially in, in terms of morality, you're looking at a particular action and making the judgment that this, if I'm, what I'm about to do or I'm asked to do, is it good that I should do it? Is it bad that I should avoid it? So judgment is on a particular uh, application, uh, uh, case by case, so to speak, whereas discernment, you're looking at a broader uh, choice in life.
1: Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, not taking your phone calls today. Joden writes in and she says, a Catholic couple lives in Southeast Asia. He is a Catholic from birth and is American, and she is a recent convert, and she's Asian. She has started a business selling incense. Part of her own promotion advertises incense for pagan use. Some of her recent advertising includes uh, these phrases, Good luck will come, repelling bad vibes, remove bad energy, feng shui, spirituality, get rid of ghosts, and helps connect Buddha, saints, ancestors to bring a blessing and peace. One time she mentioned God of wealth, so I sent a link regarding the first commandment from the Catechism of the Catholic Church to them from the Vatican website. My question is: If they practice Catholicism, is she permitted by our faith to promote or advertise products for pagan use?
2: Yeah, if she's doing as you described, no. It's one thing to supply supplies, okay? If you're, it's like if you're at a a sporting goods store, you're selling bullets, all right? Uh, You're selling uh, firearms or bows and arrows. Um, You know, there's nothing immoral about doing that, because people can use those for moral and good purposes. Uh, If somebody abuses that, that's a different matter, but that's not your fault. Uh, You know, you're, you're providing something that's legitimate. Incense in and of itself is, is an innocuous thing, but it's how you advertise and promote it. So if you're saying this is going to bring you good luck, if you're uh, playing on people's, um, you know, superstitions and that, then that's wrong. That is a violation of the first commandment. Selling incense by itself is not the sin; it's how you market it. So, if you're telling people that this is going to bring you good luck, if you're encouraging them to use it for uh, pagan worship, then yes, you cannot, as a Christian, do that. But the manufacture of incense and the mere selling of it—you know, there's there's nothing intrinsically evil about it. So it's how you do it, as well as why.
1: Uh, we have an anonymous email here who asks, do you have any insights into the consecration of Mary?
2: Well, we just did it here at the seminary on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception because I'm the chaplain for the Legion of Mary here at the seminary. And one of the things we encourage our members to do is every year renew their consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary according to the, the um, uh, prescriptions of St. Louis-Marie-de-Montfort. Um, consecrating yourself to Mary is an option, okay? You do not have to do it. Um, it's not meant to, in any way, shape, or form, uh, replace Jesus uh, with Mary, but it's going to Jesus through Mary, because that's his mother. And, you know, at the wedding feast at Cana, he was very instrumental in our Lord performing his first public miracle. Obviously, being God, he knew what she was going to say. He could have told her, you know, no, I'm not going to do it, but he did it. He acceded to her, her request. So, Consecrating yourself to Mary merely means I'm asking for her maternal intercession, and she's going to intercede for me to the mediator, Jesus Christ.
1: Uh, Mary in D.C. on this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday writes in, My question is about the title given to St. Edward of the Confessor. Why is he called the confessor? And also in the litany of the holy name of Jesus, there is an intercession that reads, Jesus, light of confessors, have mercy on us. Is this the same reference to a confessor as St. Edward?
2: Okay, well, uh, certainly we we call, typically the confessor term that we use today in English refers to a priest who actually hears confessions. Um, In ancient times, in medieval particularly, like Saint Edward the Confessor doesn't mean that he was a priest. in he heard confessions, but they used the terminology "I confessed my my sins." Today we often say "I'm going to confession," but a confessor is someone in Middle Ages who went to confession, who went to confession frequently and often, uh, who was found great solace in that sacrament. Whereas today, you would typically do not refer to someone who's not a priest as the confessor, but uh, certainly. St. Edward, who, who was uh, the, the king at the time, uh, he was not uh, an ordained priest, but he certainly was very faithful to that sacrament.
1: Uh, Gary would like to know, what spiritual benefit is there to lighting a votive candle in
2: church for a deceased loved one? Okay, again, it's not the act that is important, it's the intentionality. So when you light a candle, the physical lighting of the candle does nothing. But it's a reminder that when you go to church, you see all these candles lit. Each and every one of them represents somebody's intention. It represents prayers that are being offered by someone for someone else or for a particular intention. So when you and I go to church and we see all those candles lit, it's a good idea for us to say, Lord, I want to pray for whatever those intentions may be. So we're uniting ourselves as fellow intercessors to the one mediator jesus Um, the light of the candle is a a wonderful practice because what it does is involves again the senses you've got that smell of the beeswax you have the sight of the candle burning but there's nothing magical about the candle the wax or the flame but those burning candles again appeal to the senses and they remind us that somebody is asking for prayer and that's what we want to keep in mind
1: And I think our final question probably for this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, it says, Attention, Father (laughs) Trigilio. I recently missed going to Mass because of illness. I had a bad cough and was afraid to start coughing during Mass, and I wasn't sure I could sit through it without this happening. I need to know if I committed a mortal sin because of my not attending Mass. Thank you, and God bless you, Michelle.
2: Okay, Michelle. Well, obviously, we are dispensed from the obligation to go to Mass if we're seriously ill. And seriously ill can mean a number of things. You can't get out of bed. Uh, you can't drive to or get to church. Um, you may uh, contaminate other people. Uh, you may be contagious. Um, the fact that you have a very bad cough, especially in this post-pandemic, post-COVID era, that could be concerning to people that someone's coughing and everyone starts running out of the church when they see that. Um, I would say mention it to the next time you go to confession, but I would not say that you need to avoid going to communion in the meantime because this was not uh, grave matter and serious uh, deliberation uh, if because of your health concerns. Merry Christmas, Father. Bon Natale. <laughs> would you leave us with a blessing? Benedicavos omnipotens Deus pater e filius et Spiritus sanctus. Amen.
1: Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Trigilio, our producer, Charles Beery, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, very, very Merry Christmas to each one of you as we start this Christmas journey. And uh, we'll be back at it again tomorrow with Father Wade talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until then, God bless.